0: I got a brand new sweetie, the no one before. Oh, she got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 204 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the first time in many months that I am releasing two episodes in one week. I haven't done a mini episode. Like this in ages. Usually, my episodes have some tragic and shocking and horrifying stories. That's the nature of newspapers. People don't always write about the good things that happen in life because that's not what sells newspapers. People want something they can gossip about around the water cooler in the office. And the lovely thing that took place down the street isn't going to compare to whispering about the mysterious murder that also took place. But it's the holiday season right now, and Christmas is just a few days away, and for this Christmas gift to you, I went in search of Christmas miracles. Not stories of Santa and gifts, but three unique stories from history that people called Christmas miracles when they printed about them in newspapers. So let's get right into it. The first story I have for you happened on December 24, 1931. But the headline comes from the Tennessean newspaper out of Nashville, Tennessee, a whole year later. I'm going to read you this very long headline. It says Six day old baby found in hat box in Arizona desert Christmas Eve somewhere awaits first birthday. On Christmas Eve in 1931, Ed and Julia Stewart had to make a quick business trip from their home in Mesa, Arizona, to Superior, Arizona, which was about 50 miles away. They took Julia's twin teenage cousins, John and Betty Mansfield, along for the ride. Since it was Christmas Eve, the Stewarts wanted to hurry home so they could celebrate the holiday and spend time with their eight month old baby. Unfortunately, on their way back to Mesa, The car they were driving in got a flat tire. The group was frustrated that they would have to spend even more time away from their family, but it would turn out that that flat tire was a Christmas miracle for someone else. While Ed changed the tire and the Mansfield twins stayed huddled in the back seat, Julia Stewart got out to walk around in an attempt to stay warm on that cold December evening. Julia said the stars were shining brightly that night and she remembered thinking that the scene looked like something you would see on a Christmas card. She wandered about 200 feet away from the car when she suddenly heard a strange noise out in the dark. Now, keep in mind, they didn't get a flat tire in the middle of a city, but rather in the middle of the Arizona desert. The noise sounded like a whimper, and Julia wondered if maybe there was a puppy or a kitten out there somewhere. She began to investigate and called her husband over. What they discovered next would be the biggest surprise of their lifetime. Nestled inside a black hat box, there in the middle of the desert, was a newborn baby. It was a little girl, and she had red hair. The group hurried to finish changing the tire, and then took off as fast as they could to get the baby to the police station. The police took the baby to a local maternity hospital and had a doctor look at her. The doctor gave her a clean bill of health. As soon as people started hearing about the baby found in a hatbox on Christmas Eve, they began traveling from near and far, hoping to get to see her. They brought gifts, like gold bracelets, and they knelt by her cradle to pray. People named her too, at least temporarily. They called her Marian, which was meant to be a variation on the name of Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ whose birth was being celebrated the day Marion was found. Despite many searches, nobody came forward to claim the baby, and nobody reported any missing children. So the little girl was soon put up for adoption. More than a hundred couples threw their hat in the ring, hoping to be the family to take the little girl home. And eventually, a judge narrowed it down to just a few couples. And then finally, he chose a family he only referred to as the Steegs. When they asked to adopt the baby, the couple said, quote, "'We'll change our name. We'll go away. We'll move to a foreign country if we have to. Baby shall have our name and home and love as if she were our own. The world shall never know and point its fingers at her and embarrass her. She's too sweet.'" The couple's promise to never tell the baby about her true identity sealed the deal for the judge, and he granted the adoption to them. And then they disappeared into society somewhere, and nobody knew who or where they were. A year later, in the article whose headline I read to you earlier, the judge in the case issued a statement about the baby since he knew the true identity of her parents. He said, quote, She has found a good home. She can walk a bit now. She smiles and gurgles and plays with a kitty. She has the colic only rarely. She is a sweet baby. Then, after that year mark, people stopped talking about the hatbox baby as much, and the story slowly faded away. True to their promise to the judge, the couple didn't tell their growing child about her birth and where she came from. At least, not for 55 years. Then, a woman named Sharon Elliott got a huge shock. Her mother, Faith Morrow, was dying of cancer and called her daughter to her side to confess something. She told Sharon that she was the hatbox baby, a mystery that had fascinated people in Arizona for many decades. Sharon had grown up in California, and in 1986, when her mother made the confession, she was working for an aerospace company. As a child, Sharon loved to do things like roller skate, and when she was a teenager, she was a cheerleader for her high school. Originally, Sharon was adopted by Faith and her husband, Henry Stieg. Both parents were on their second marriage already, and they were wanting to have kids but weren't able to. Then the opportunity to adopt the hatbox baby fell into their laps. Unfortunately, their marriage didn't last and they divorced just seven months after the adoption when Henry accused Faith of being cruel to him. Faith took Sharon and moved to California. She married again, but her husband had tuberculosis and they were only married for a year before he passed away. But Faith found love again and that time she was with her husband for 40 years before he passed. That was the man who raised Sharon. I will say that there were some more discrepancies, including Faith using an alias at times, and Sharon's name being changed from what they originally named her at the beginning of the adoption, but I won't take time to get into all of that. When Faith confessed to Sharon, she couldn't believe what her mother had told her. How could everyone in her family have kept the secret from her for so long? And why? When Sharon's mother passed away a few months later, she decided to begin searching for her birth family again. Maybe after 55 years, someone would be willing to come forward and tell what they knew. Except, despite getting the adoption records unsealed, and despite exhaustive searches and questioning, no viable leads were coming in. Then, Sharon's story was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and thousands of tips poured in. Still, nothing panned out, and Sharon still couldn't find her family. 30 more years passed, and still Sharon Elliott didn't know who her biological family was. But a newspaper reporter in Arizona by the name of John Deanna had periodically been following up on Sharon's case, and he became good friends with her. He would spend the next 30 years helping her look for information. Friends, I spent a very long time reading everything John wrote, and the research he did on behalf of Sharon Elliott, and it would take ages to explain it all here. So, for the sake of keeping this episode short, I will tell you that as technology advanced and DNA testing advanced, and as forensic genealogy has become a thing, John and others were able to prove who Sharon's biological parents had been. Unfortunately, they had been dead for many years, and the secret of how Sharon ended up in a hatbox in the Arizona desert died with them. The researchers found out that she had a biological brother, too. But he died just weeks before that discovery was made. Luckily, Sharon was able to hear the names of her parents before she passed away, too. They were Walter and Frieda Roth, and they were from Iowa. Sharon Elliott passed away in the same month that she was born, December in 2018. She was just days away from her 87th birthday, just days away from the 87th anniversary of the day she was found in the desert. The circumstances that led to her being found in the middle of nowhere and going on to live a happy life were nothing short of a Christmas miracle. For my second Christmas miracle, I'm taking a headline from the Winston-Salem Journal out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The headline says, Meredith Victory Credited with Saving 14,000 Koreans. This is dated February 14, 1951, which you'll know to be Valentine's Day, not Christmas. But the story that this article tells actually took place a few months earlier, and the details were just coming to light and finding their way to the newspapers. This is the story of a miracle created by Captain Leonard P. LaRue. Captain LaRue was the captain of a merchant marine ship named the Meredith Victory, and he was 36 years old. During the Korean War, Captain LaRue and his ship were stationed in waters directly where the war was going on. Three days before Christmas in 1950, the SS Meredith Victory was sent to the port town of Hungnam in Northeast Korea to deliver and retrieve much needed military supplies. Troops from both the Chinese and North Korean armies were advancing on Hungnam, and they were only hours away from the town when Captain LaRue began his operation. Supposedly, Those armies had vowed to kill anyone they found in the town when they arrived. So, when the captain arrived, he realized the situation was much more serious than he'd expected. Nearly a 100,000 people had gone to the port, hoping to be evacuated with the retreating United Nations command soldiers and all of their supplies. Captain Leroux had a tender heart, and when he saw the people standing on shore, with children in their arms, he knew he had to do something more than just retrieve military supplies. He knew that if he left them there, they would probably meet a horrible fate. He also knew that there was a big problem with loading them onto his ship. You see, his ship wasn't a passenger ship, and it was only designed to carry 12 passengers in addition to the crew. But he decided he had to try anyway. He ordered his crew to quickly unload all of the cargo they had on board, and then one by one, the Koreans came on board, filling every little space they could find on the ship. This process lasted for hours, and the crew even had to rig up contraptions to lower people down into the cargo holds. When it was all said and done, instead of 12 passengers on board, the Meredith Victory was carrying... 14,000 passengers. That number didn't include the babies being carried by their mothers. They filled the main deck and all five of the ship's cargo holds. The crew would later report that people were trying to carry their prized possessions onto the ship, including someone carrying a violin, another carrying a sewing machine, and someone even attempted to bring a piano on board. but. Sadly, to fit as many people as possible, people had to leave their belongings behind on the docks. And yes, they had somehow managed to squeeze that many people on board, but that didn't mean they were in the clear. For one thing, food and water on board were extremely limited. It wasn't a rescue mission that anyone had planned for. And for another thing, the ship needed to leave secretly and without a military escort, so that it wouldn't draw any attention to itself. That meant that the only weapon they had, the only way they had to defend themselves, was a single pistol that the captain had in his pocket. If they came under attack, that pistol would do nothing to help their situation. The ship didn't have a doctor on board, nor did it even have an interpreter on board. There wasn't any heat or lights down in the cargo holds. And remember, this was December. It was very cold. There also weren't any bathrooms for that many people. And I'll let you just imagine what kind of a nightmare that must have been. And since the ship wasn't designed to be a military ship, it didn't have any mine detection equipment on board. And they were about to embark on a journey through very dangerous waters. Now, there was another problem that happened as they were navigating through those waters. Some of the women on board were pregnant, and they'd gone into labor during all of the excitement. The first mate of the ship ended up delivering one woman's baby that first day. They had to turn the first aid station into a maternity ward, and four other babies would be born before the trip was over. During the first night, Captain LaRue looked out on the freezing people on his deck, and he was sure that the morning light would shine on multiple people who didn't survive the harsh conditions. That night, the captain, who was a devout Catholic, wrote in his journal, The nearness of Christmas carries my thoughts to the Holy Family, how they, too, were cold and without shelter. The next morning, the captain was shocked, to find that not a single person had passed away in the night. They were cold, they were hungry, and they were extremely thirsty, but they were all alive. That night, the ship reached its destination of Pusan, or at least they thought they reached their destination. A million refugees had already arrived, and when the Meredith victory showed up, the army turned them away telling them that there was absolutely no more room for them in Pusan. Captain LaRue would again compare it to the first Christmas and Joseph and Mary being turned away when there was no room in the inn. Panic started to set in, but Captain LaRue kept everyone calm and got food and water for them. Then they continued on to an island that was 50 miles away. When they arrived on Christmas Day, Not a single person had passed away. It didn't take long for people to start calling it the Ship of Miracles, and Captain LaRue said, God's own hand was at the helm of my ship. The rescue made by the captain and the crew of the Meredith Victory still holds the record for the largest humanitarian rescue operation by a single ship in human history. Just a few years after the rescue, Captain LaRue left the sea behind and became a Benedictine monk. He devoted the rest of his life to that service. He passed away in 2001, the same year a book titled Ship of Miracles was released. I bet you can guess what that book is about. In recent years, there's been a push in the Catholic Church for him to receive sainthood because of the rescue. And whether you believe in divine intervention or not, I'm sure you'll agree that something great took place back on the Christmas of 1950. For my last Christmas miracle, I'm not going to tell you about one that made big national headlines like the first two. Instead, I'll tell you a miracle that I could only find in one source. A story sent to the Edmonton Journal up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Clear back on December 22nd, 1928. It's appropriately headlined, A Christmas Miracle. This story was written by a woman named Edna Baker, and she said that this Christmas miracle had taken place the year before, in 1927. This story had been told to her by a local doctor. Since this was the 1920s, it was a time when doctors still went out on house calls, even when the weather was not great and they'd rather stay in by their warm fires. A man who drove a grain wagon showed up at the doctor's home one night just before Christmas and told him that he'd been asked to send word that the doctor was needed on a farm a few miles from the doctor's home. A woman was about to deliver a baby. It was a cold December night in Canada and it had taken the messenger a couple of hours to get to the doctor's house to deliver the news. Time was of an essence, and the doctor hurried to find the farmhouse in the dark. It sat 50 yards back from the road, but somehow he managed to see it just before he passed it. It was a tiny home with just two rooms. The walls had been plastered with mud and then whitewashed, and there was only one kerosene lamp to give any light to the home. The doctor knew he was at the right place because he could hear a woman crying out in pain from inside the tiny home. He was met at the door by a girl that looked to be just 11 or 12 years old. The story never really says who the girl was, but I believe she was some sort of servant girl. Anyway, the little girl told the doctor that the woman's husband had gone to a different town the day before, and he hadn't made it back yet. The pregnant woman had gone out to the barn to do chores, I assume, and she'd fallen. It sent her into labor and the young girl didn't know what to do. To say that she was relieved when the doctor showed up would be an understatement for sure. The doctor said that he would need someone else to help and he asked the girl if there were any neighbors who could come by. The girl told him that the only person she could think of was a man named Bill Kremenchuk and he lived about a mile away but the girl laughed at the idea of Bill coming to help and said they didn't even really know him. The doctor insisted, though, and the girl went off in search of Bill. Meanwhile, the doctor went to work helping the woman on the bed, who was in a lot of pain. He quickly realized that the woman didn't speak English and communication was difficult. She was young, and it was most likely her first baby. The laboring woman had dark bruises on her hip and shoulder, probably from her fall in the barn. Her red, cut, calloused hands showed that she was a hard worker and had probably worked much harder than a woman in her condition should have. Well, not too long later, the young girl came back with Bill Kremenchuk in tow. He was a large man, and he took up a lot of space in the small room. But the doctor immediately put him to work holding up a lamp while the young girl was sent to boil water and get a strong fire going in the fireplace. Bill didn't say much, but the doctor did recall that he was mumbling something in English about having to do the work an old woman should be doing. The doctor just ignored him. After all, there was nobody else that could assist him. Meanwhile, the young girl chatted away, telling the doctor about the pregnant woman's situation. She and her husband had arrived in Canada that summer, and they'd come to help with the harvest. They'd only lived in the two-room home for about a week, and they were just house-sitting there while the family who owned it moved into a bigger place in the city for the winter, and so their kids could go to school. Luckily, with the doctor there, things actually went pretty smoothly with the birth. And two hours after his arrival at the little farmhouse, the woman was holding her baby girl in her arms. After experiencing the miracle of birth, Bill stopped his mumbling and offered to stay with the woman and the baby until her husband returned. The young servant girl then called him by name, addressing him as Mr. Kremenchuk. The woman who had just given birth suddenly whipped her head around and looked right at Bill. Up to that point, she'd kind of been preoccupied, And since she'd never met her neighbor, it wasn't important what he looked like. But something about the name triggered her. The woman said something to Bill in her language, and the doctor couldn't understand it. Bill suddenly hurried to the bedside and knelt beside the woman. They rapidly exchanged words, none of which could be understood by anyone else in the room. And the doctor tried to tell Bill not to excite her, but all his efforts were in vain and before he knew what was happening, Bill had bent over and was hugging the woman and kissing her all over her face. Finally, the doctor managed to get Bill to tell his story, and I must say, it truly was a Christmas miracle that December of 1927. You see, Bill was Russian, and 13 years earlier, he had marched with his regiment out of his town. World War I was raging, and he was going to find himself in the thick of it. When Bill went to war, he left behind his wife and his seven-year-old daughter. When his regiment came through the town again a year and a half later, there was no happy reunion. The town had been burned. His wife and his daughter were gone. His friends were gone. Everything he knew and loved was gone. But Bill was still part of the army and he couldn't stop and take time to search for them. So, with a broken heart, he marched on, never finding any answers. When the war finally ended, Bill tried to find his family, hoping they'd been refugees sent somewhere else. But he couldn't find them. Nobody knew where they were. Some of his friends were heading to Canada to make a new start, and Bill decided to go with them. He got a small piece of land in northern Alberta and began his new life there, mostly keeping to himself, still mourning the loss of his family. But that night, in 1927, he had gone unwillingly to help hold a light above a woman in pain. And as they talked, he discovered that the woman who had just given birth was his long-lost daughter. That new little Christmas baby was his beautiful granddaughter. Somehow, a Christmas miracle had brought the father and daughter together in an entirely different country and culture. Friends, I hope you enjoyed these Christmas miracles, and I hope you have some miracles of your own this season. Stay subscribed, and one of these days, when you're least expecting it, I'll pop up in your feed again with more great additional history stories. Talk to you later.